just a couple of reminders in relation to announcements. It seems like there's a couple of announcements that ought to be on here that are never finding their way on here, and I can't remember what they are. One of them is that we need to continue to pray for the people in Brazil, and we need to that uh, what is is that light in action, Jeff? Is that there? And their ministry, they were broken into and held a gunpoint and tied up, and all of their uh, equipment was uh, stolen a few couple of weeks ago. And we need to continue to be in prayer for them and uh, their testimony in the midst of this difficulty, as well as God's provision of more equipment. We also need to pray for the Chafer Conference coming up and several things that are going on in relation to that. And for Camp Arete, and then a reminder that this coming Sunday, Daylight Savings Times begins, so set your clocks forward an hour Saturday night. And a reminder that there will be no Bible class next Tuesday night, which is March March the 15th. And we're also going to need volunteers after church this coming this coming Sunday. I think that uh, pretty much... Oh, the picnic. Uh, the picnic is going to be on April the 16th. So get that on your calendars. Uh, we're having that in the spring this year because we've gotten rained out the last couple of picnics in last year's men's... Um, uh, men's camp out got rained out, so this year we're just going to try to have the um, uh, picnic on the uh, 16th, so the day after your taxes are due, you can celebrate. All right. I think that just about covers it. Alan, you know of anything else? All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll take a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture says that we need to confess sin. That's the only thing uh, that is a prerequisite for, a for a forgiveness and cleansing, that when we simply admit or acknowledge our sin, what we're doing in effect is recognizing that was paid for at the cross and that we are cleansed again from that sin so that we can uh, continue or resume our walk by the Holy Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together this evening and to focus on your word, to be reminded of your grace, your faithfulness, your goodness to us, all the many ways in which you provide for us, far beyond anything that we, we deserve, and that so often we... Uh, commit sins, continue to commit sins. We continue to be uh, rebellious and disobedient in areas where we just are stubborn and refusing to uh, walk with you. And yet you're faithful and you're good to us and you bless us, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ did for us on the cross. Father, we see this illustrated time and again in the Old Testament with Israel that despite their disobedience, despite their idolatry, despite their continued stubbornness, 
Nevertheless, you were gracious to them, and you were always faithful to your covenant. And so, Father, we rely on your faithfulness and your goodness and your grace, and we trust that you will continue to deal with us on the basis of your grace. And we pray that we will come to better understanding of that this evening. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're in 1 Samuel 12 tonight. Last week, we looked at the story of the snake versus the Messiah, so to speak. The snake is the actual meaning of the term or the name for Nahash the Ammonite. And in that battle, Saul, who is the Lord's anointed, he is the Mashiach, the Lord's anointed king for Israel. He is God's choice to be king. It's very clear that God has chosen uh, Saul to be that king and has worked to provide evidence, uh, clear, external, objectifiable evidence that he is the one that God has chosen. And one, uh, one part of that external evidence is that Saul functioned as the Messiah and delivered Israel from the, from the onslaughts of this horrible, vicious, violent uh, Ammonite king. And that, as I pointed out, is one of many pictures that we have throughout Scripture of how ultimately the seed of the serpent will be defeated by the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one of God, who is Jesus, who defeated Satan uh, strategically at the cross and will complete that defeat at the when he returns at the Battle of Armageddon, and he, at that time he will throw Satan into uh, into uh, the abyss for a thousand years, and as he establishes his kingdom, there are a lot of parallels, a lot of pictures, a lot of analogies that we see. Some of them rise to the level of types. Some of them are just patterns that the Holy Spirit brings out historically and records for us uh, in in the Scripture. And as we have seen this, we come to this section at the end of chapter chapter 11 where, where once again Samuel confirms that Saul is God's choice and they have a public recognition of this in coronation at a place called Gilgal. So I know that we've all seen this uh, many times. As we uh, look at the screen, we see the title for tonight's lesson and the focal point of this. Even though this is a lawsuit that Samuel is bringing against Israel, and it is an indictment, it's a legally structured indictment against Israel, uh, God, it, it, the focal point of it is that despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite their disobedience, that will continue into the future. God, as he has been in the past, will continue to be faithful to them. God will bring discipline into the life of Israel, but the only hope of surviving is to reorient themselves to the plan of God. So the focal point of this chapter, as we look at it, is to focus on the grace of God and his continued faithfulness to Israel despite the fact that they are disobedient. That's what grace is. Grace is the undeserved favor of God to fallen creatures who are disobedient. We've seen the structure again and again that the first seven chapters focuses on Samuel. We see the uh, desire expressed in chapter 8 by Israel that they want to have a king. 
And this is a rejection, just important reminder, because chapter 8 is really the backdrop for chapter 12. The focal point in chapter 8 is that they want to have a king like all the other nations. They've rejected Samuel as a leader. They've rejected uh, his sons as following him as leaders. And ultimately, as God says, they haven't rejected Samuel. They've rejected God. They don't want to follow divine viewpoint. They don't want to trust the Lord. They don't want to be, be obedient. And this is a pattern that we're going to see again and again and again in Israel. In fact, if you take the time to read Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah is a great book because, right now for this nation because as you read Jeremiah, you're often reminded of this, this country and what this nation is going through. And time and again in Jeremiah, you have uh, the leaders of Israel and leaders of different groups coming to Jeremiah, and they say, just tell us what God wants us to do, and we'll do it. We love the Lord. We'll do it. And it's such a reminder of you know politicians and people today. In fact, I had a conversation with somebody even today, and they were talking about somebody they knew. And, they, well, they love the Lord, and they go to their little umpty-dump church and this and that and the other thing. And, of course, I always say, well, if you love the Lord, why are you going to that crappy little church? And why aren't you get, getting the Word of God? Why aren't you doing the Word of God? I mean, because that's what Scripture says, and that's what happens in Jeremiah. Time and again, these leaders come to Jeremiah, tell us what God wants us to do. We'll do it. We'll do whatever he wants to do. We love the Lord. Jeremiah says the word of the Lord says to do this. They say, we're not going to do it. We're not. We won't do it. Not at all. And I see evidence of that all the time in this in this culture. We see people who want the uh, facade of religion, the the facade of piety. They go and they want to feel good at church, and they sing the songs they sing, and they go through the rituals they go through and everything, and it makes them feel good about themselves because they've constructed a little idol that as long as they worship that little idol in their head, then they're going to feel good about themselves. But it has nothing to do with the Bible or loving the Lord or doing what the Lord wants to do. And this is so typical of Israel. We're going to see it again and again in Samuel with Israel, but we're also going to see it in the coming chapters with Saul because Saul right now has been sort of riding a really good wave. Everything's going his way. God has chosen him to be king, and many positive things have happened as God has blessed him in the previous chapters. But the problem with Saul is the problem we see repeated again and again throughout Israel. We see it in Jeremiah at his time. We see it in the church again and again is that the the people just don't want to be obedient. They want to do it their own their own own way. So we see the rise of Saul in chapters eight through fifteen, and really uh, eight is Israel's choice. They want to have a king. 9 and 10 focus on God's choice of Saul as the first king. Uh, chapter 11 is the final evidence that he is God's chosen king. And then chapter 12 is going to be the transition of power, the change of command ceremony from Samuel uh, to Saul. And after this, Saul will be the king. And when we get into chapter 13, it's not long before we start seeing things go downhill because we see Saul becoming disobedient in chapter 13 and he disobeys 
disobeys God, functions, tries to function as a priest and offer a sacrifice, and what happens? God brings discipline on him and says, if you had obeyed me, I would bless you and your descendants would sit on the throne. But because you haven't obeyed me, you are going to, uh, you're going to lose the throne. And you will not have a dynasty, and your son will not sit on the on on the throne. So there's there's divine judgment there, and that is a foreshadowing of what happens to a greater degree in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, God has Samuel anoint David, and we see the rise of David. Now the location for this event is the red dot in the middle of the screen. That's Gilgal. Gilgal is a significant site in Israel's history. It is on par with what happens at Mount Sinai. I pointed this out last time. You have a a couple of events that take place in Israel's history. Mount Sinai, God gave the law. Then when the uh, conquest generation crossed the Jordan, they gathered at Gilgal and they reconfirmed the covenant with Moses there for their generation. And now this is... uh, That was about 1406 B.C., and now it's roughly 1050. So this is about uh, 350 years later, and they are going to uh, bring sacrifices before the Lord, and they're going to accept and recognize Saul as their king. And so this is the significant site. And two or three times in the coming chapters, we're going to see... Uh, a, a return of Saul and his his army to to Gilgal, this significant site. Now, at the end of the previous chapter, we're told so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in in Gilgal. Now, I've got they made underlined they're making Saul the king, not outside of God's will, but it is God's permissive will. He has allowed them this, uh, recognizing their disobedience, recognizing their stubbornness. God has allowed them to go with their plan. And so he has authorized Samuel to to uh, uh, anoint Saul uh, to be their king. And so they're making sacrifices, peace offerings before the Lord, which always speak of reconciliation with the Lord and fellowship with the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So they're having a huge celebration. And this is a, a, a remarkable time. The first time you've seen this kind of event in Israel's history, the crowning of a king, and everybody is excited. And then Samuel is going to take the stage. Okay? You've got to sense that, that what's the tone, what's the atmosphere. It's like the 4th of July for everyone. They are excited. Samuel's speech is not a 4th of July speech. It's not going to be a feel-good speech. It is one of his longest speeches that's recorded. In fact, in this chapter, there are, there's a dialogue that takes place between Samuel and the people, and there are three lengthy statements of Saul that are recorded here, and one of them is the longest a statement that he makes in, recorded in, uh, in in Samuel. Three of his long of his six longest statements are in here, and the longest one is in here. So uh, this is a, a reconfirmation. That's what Saul's going to do. God has anointed Saul, but 
and then you have to pay attention to what he says after the but. In the previous chapters, in chapter 9 and chapter 10, we've seen how God selected Saul, directed Samuel to anoint Saul, and has given both private and public confirmations of, of his choice of Saul to be king. There is no doubt that God has acquiesced and authorized Saul to be king, and that is, uh, that is important. This is the historical confirmation of Saul to be king and the authorized beginning of the office of king in Israel. There's one other king that was anointed in Israel, and that was Gideon's son, Abimelech. He's not authorized by God, but they still crowned him king uh, in, in Shechem. So Samuel is going to uh, take the stage here, and we need to understand what he is doing. In this chapter, he is going to exercise his full potential as a prophet. The role of a prophet was someone who represented God to the people. A priest represents the people to God. The priest is the one who would come on behalf of the people to bring sacrifices in the tabernacle and the temple. But a prophet is one who represents God, um, God to the people. Uh, often people think of a prophet simply as someone who foretells the future. But when the prophet is foretelling the future, it is usually in relation to either promised judgment or promised blessing. That's where the, the, the future comes in. And everything that the prophet says, whether we're talking about early prophets such as uh, uh, Elijah or Elisha, uh, or we're talking about the later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Uh, whenever they are speaking, it, it's always from the vantage point of the Mosaic Law because God predicted and promised in the Mosaic Law that there would be a series of blessings for Israel if they were obedient. That's the first part of, De- of uh, Leviticus 26, about the first 14 verses. And then the rest of Leviticus 26 lists five series or cycles of discipline that God's going to bring upon Israel, the most severe of which is to remove them from the land. But it involves famine and disease and increasing intensifications of famine and disease and military defeat and military occupation, economic disaster, agricultural disaster, until it gets to the point where Israel is just overrun and destroyed by Uh, a foreign power, and the people are removed from the land, and that's in the fifth cycle of discipline. Deuteronomy uh, 28 to 30 repeats in in a more summarized fashion those same patterns. And so when the the prophet comes up, he is is grounded on those passages, and he is addressing the people, and he functions like the Attorney General of the United States. He, in the sense that he is bringing an indictment and announcing a punishment for the people. He represents God. He is indicting them for their uh, disobedience to the law, and then he will announce what that judgment is going to be. He is the representative of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the King of Israel, and so he brings this charge against the nation. Uh, this, this kind of format 
is used, uh, there is a term in Hebrew that's been used to describe the, the framework. It's called a reeve, just R-I-V, a reeve format. And the Hebrew word reeve means to contend with someone. And so this is God contending with his people because they have broken covenant with him. They have violated the covenant. And what we see in a reformat usually is a format that focuses on how God has been faithful to the covenant, how the people have been disobedient or unfaithful to the covenant, and how God is going to be faithful to the covenant in bringing judgment or discipline upon them, because that is part of the covenant that God promised, but that in the end, they will turn back to God, and eventually God will restore Israel to the land. Those are the things that we often see as different elements that are within these these announcements. Now, sometimes there's more of that. Sometimes there's, there's, there is... Uh, less less of that. So this is one of those critical passages of Scripture that define Israel's spiritual failure, um, spiritual failure before God. And as we, as I said earlier, this is really the change of uh, of leadership ceremony between changing the command from uh, Samuel uh, to Saul. In order to understand this chapter. A little bit of background on covenants. There's a couple of different covenant forms that were used uh, in the Old Testament in terms of their literary structure. And these were taken from uh, the normal ways in which uh, contracts or covenants were written at that time, which I think ultimately have their pattern in God's original covenant with man in the garden. I think it's always God first, man second. And so as God made covenant, entered into a covenant with uh, Adam at the creation, the creation covenant, modified it at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, those elements became a, a pattern or frame of reference for human, human contracts. And what we see is the Mosaic Law is, follows a pattern that's called the suzerain-vassal treaty form. And in the suzerain-vassal treaty form, you would have a great king, uh, the king of an empire, who would enter into a contract or covenant with a client king a, 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 that he has defeated. And he basically will enter into a covenant and say, if you will do these things, usually having to do with providing border security, something we don't know anything about anymore, uh, border security uh, for the empire, then the great king will honor him by doing certain things for them. And if they fail, then the great king will lower the boom. Now, this is the pattern really for the for the Mosaic law, these blessings and cursings, and Israel is viewed as God's ultimate uh, vassal uh, vassal nation and because of this this particular covenant and so what god is saying in the covenant is because i have done these great things for you and the great thing that he's talking about usually which we'll see in this chapter is god's bringing israel out of slavery in egypt because i've done this for you because i have redeemed you and i want you to then then this is what i how i expect you to live and what i expect you to do Notice it in, in the Mosaic Law that, that the pattern here shows that the Mosaic Law can't be about salvation because God saves Israel first 
and then tells them, gives them the Mosaic law and tells them how to live. He's not giving them the law first and then saying, this is how you live and then I will redeem you. Uh, redemption comes first, but a redeemed people are supposed to live uh, a certain way. They have certain obligations and certain responsibilities, and if they live in obedience to those responsibilities, then God is going to uh, God is going to bless them. So there's certain things that we see, and I've got a list of five elements here that we see in a typical Reeve format. First of all. There is a call to witnesses. There is a statement within the, usually in the beginning in the introduction where witnesses are called to witness this kind of, of, uh, of condemnation or indictment. It, it's public and it's a legal framework. So we have called to witnesses and we see that in chapter 12 as Israel, as Samuel calls upon the nation to stand as a witness in terms of his his behavior and and God's behavior. Second, what we see is there is an introductory summary of the case, and that's what we see in the first 12 verses of chapter 12. There's an introductory summary of the situation as it currently stands in Israel. And the third thing that is usually seen, since the focal point of this indictment is is coming from the Supreme Court of Heaven, it's coming from God as the King of Israel, uh, there's a recital of how God has been good to Israel. The, the prophet will rehearse sometimes more, more, more of a summary fashion, sometimes more detailed fashion, but the prophet will remind Israel how God has been good to them in the past, uh, in spite of the fact that they have, they have been disobedient. A fourth element, and we'll see this in verses 13, uh, 13 to 19, is there's an accusation. There's the formal indictment against the nation that accuses them of violating the contract in some form. And then the conclusion is the announcement of a judgment upon the nation for their, for their disobedience. And at the end of this, there is also a solution to the problem that is offered by by Samuel beginning in, in verse 19 where uh, the people call upon Samuel to pray, pray for them that they will not die, that God would not destroy them, and for all the evil they have done in asking for a king. And then Samuel tells them not to, basically not to fear and turn back to the Lord. And even though there will be discipline, uh, only by turning back to the Lord will they be able to survive and go forward as a nation. So this is the essence of this uh, this indictment against Israel. So it begins in chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And in these, this statements, Samuel begins to, uh, rehearse the current situation and also just to set up, uh, what the indictment is all about. First of all, he gives an assessment of the cur- current situation. 
that he is the one who has made a king over them, and he's going to make it clear in this indictment that if this goes south, if this goes badly, if this falls apart, if Saul doesn't turn out well, it's not going to be his fault, and it's not going to be God's fault. He and God are not to be held uh, responsible for any failures on Saul's part because ultimately the responsibility for Asking for a king and having a king belongs on the on the people. Uh, second, he sa- reminds them that that they are the responsible ones, and he says, "I have heeded your voice." This is a reminder of divine institution number one: individual responsibility. The responsibility is with the people. They have chosen the king. And the choice that they make is going to be for good or for bad, but it's their responsibility. That's very uh, sobering words for an election year, that this nation is going to make a decision as to who is going to govern, and we have been making poor decisions. But poor decisions come from uh, people who have weak souls who are focused on the wrong thing so that we get the leaders that we desire. And I think that we've got a trajectory, doesn't matter what party the president is, we've got a trajectory in this nation since the mid-50s. We've been on a downhill trajectory. And it doesn't matter which party, It's not an, because both parties are consumed with human viewpoint and have been dominated by leaders who have appointed a lot of bureaucrats and the country basically, in my opinion, runs is run by bureaucrats who are not concerned about the will of the people, but they're concerned about preserving their jobs and they're concerned about preserving uh, their power and, and their position. And so ultimately, I don't think it makes any difference. And until there is a heart change on the part of the people, we're conti- going to continue to have leaders that reflect the kind of moral instability and moral relativism and the lack of moral courage and are not serving the people but are serving themselves. And that's going to, going to continue. Even if we were to elect someone who was the absolute best, we still have a total infrastructure. One person cannot change the, the rotting infrastructure of an apostate nation. And that that won't resolve the problem. It may alleviate it for a little while. It may it may be able to put a few band aids on some problems. But the only thing that's going to turn this nation around ultimately is the spiritual solution, where people turn back to God. And that was the kind of situation that that Israel faced. So in this statement, when when uh, Samuel says. I have heeded your voice. He's reminding them that they're responsible. This is a reflection of the first divine institution. He's not passing the buck here. This isn't a, sim- a situation like Adam back in in uh, Genesis chapter 3 where after he ate of the fruit, God says, well, uh, who told you to? And he said, well, it's the woman who you gave me. And he bl- basically by in one concise statement, he manages to blame both the woman and God for his failure. Just like a politician, it's not my fault. Saul's going to give us a good parallel for that when we get into chapter chapter 13. But Samuel isn't passing the buck. He's making clear 
that he's following the will of the people. God has authorized this in his permissive will. And they're saying, okay, this is what you want. We're going to give it to you. And so you're going to reap the consequences because, because of your decision. So he's, he's making it clear that he's not the one responsible. That's not what he wanted. God's not responsible. That's not his ideal will. It is, uh, their responsibility. So that when the divine discipline comes, it's their responsibility. It's their, uh, it's, it's the result of their decision. And Saul is making it clear. He's not to be blamed, and God is not to be blamed. So the basic indictment is that Israel has completely rejected everything, you know, completely rejected God's leadership. They've rejected what God has provided for them, and they want to do it their own way. And even though God has delivered them again and again and again, and in this context, it's important to realize God just delivered them again, just like he did. Uh, and, and he's going to rehearse this in a minute, just like he did through all the different cycles in the period of the judges. God delivered them once again from Nahash, but once again, it doesn't stick. The people are not falling down in worship and obedience before God. And to the degree that they do, it won't, it won't last. And then a third thing that he reminds them of is really a, a throwback to what he had said in First Samuel, in, in First Samuel chapter eight. He's going to remind them uh, that that he had already warned them about what would happen with, with a king, and and just a reminder of that. I know that's a little small for some of you on the back, but I wanted to have it all up there so you see the whole context. Because what's important is what's underlined. When Samuel warns Israel about what the king is going to do, notice what he says. He will take your sons. He will, then in verse 13, he will take your daughters. In verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. In verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain. In verse 16, he will take your male servants. And in verse 17, he will take a tenth of your sheep. Six times he says, you'll get a king and he will take 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 and he will take. That's what a strong, powerful central government does. That's why this country set up things differently in our constitution to avoid having a strong central government and to give the, the, the power that wasn't delegated to the federal government that wasn't specifically given to the federal government. All other powers were to go to the states. And this is why the Tenth Amendment is so important. And it's ignored. This is, again, another tra travesty showing how not only this government and this administration, but the ones preceding it have ig consistently ignored the Tenth Amendment. They, they ought to be tried. They ought to be brought up because each congressman, president, Supreme Court justice is sworn to defend the Constitution of the United States, and what they end up doing is changing it, not according to the rules of the Constitution, but according to either uh, 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 judicial fiat or just through executive action. And so we have become a lawless people, just like Israel, and we're going to reap the same consequences because the internal rot that comes from moral relativism and spiritual failure is, ends up destroying everything, uh, everything in a culture, and that's eventually what we'll see happen, happen under, 
uh, uh, under Saul. And so Samuel reminds them of the warning that he gave initially. And then fourth, he's going to remind them of his own integrity, his own integrity. Verse 2, he says, now here's the king walking before you. I'm old and gray-headed. My sons are with you. So his, his sons are there in the, in the audience. And then he says, I've walked before you from my childhood to this day. You've known me since I was a child when my mother Hannah dropped me off at the tabernacle and I grew up serving in the tabernacle under the tutelage of Eli. You have known me. You have been aware of who I was. And my life has been an open book. And so he's reminding them of his own integrity. And notice in verse 3, there's an implied contrast with the sons of Eli. He says, uh, Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Interesting phraseology. His anointed here is Saul. He's the Mashiach, the the anointed one. He says, whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Have I confiscated anybody's animals? Or whom have I cheated? Now, who did that? Hophni and Phinehas. They were the ones that people would come, and they would bring their sacrifices, and they would they would take extra, and they would cook them, and they would take their food, and they would uh, they were also guilty of of seducing the women who were serving in the tabernacle and cre- making them into pro- uh, temple prostitutes, as it were, and paganizing the te- tabernacle worship uh, in in Israel. So he says, Wh- "Whom have I oppressed?" Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? And the sons of Eli did that. They took bribes. So he's emphasizing his own integrity. I am blameless before God. And if anybody can bring a charge, if I've done any of this, I will restore it to you. And he's called upon them to be a witness. So this is a, a, a legal uh, aspect to this kind of a lawsuit. And their response is what? This is their legal testimony. They're taking the stand. They've been asked to confirm this, and they take the stand, whether this is the elders of Israel or a a corporate response. uh, We don't know. They said, you've not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And so now you have sworn this, and we have another witness, and that is the Lord. This is verse 5. This is the Lord, and the Lord has uh, has confirmed this. Uh, then he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness. So under the principle of the Mosaic law, there would be there needed to be a confirmation of anything with two or more witnesses. So you've got two witnesses. You've got the Lord is witness, and Saul, God's anointed, is the witness against you this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And then they answer. He is my witness. So they affirm it's clearly a dialogue. There's no pressure put on them. They recognize that this is a a, a fact that saw that Samuel is absolutely, uh, absolutely blameless. And so this sets up the legal basis then for what is going to take place. Now, um, in starting in verse six, He's going to shift from showing that he's not blameless to the fact that the Lord is not blameless. So in verses 6 through 12, he's emphasizing God's faithfulness to Israel and God's faithfulness to his covenant, even though Israel has not uh, 
been faithful. Now, I don't have a slide on verse 6, but verse 6 says, Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord, it is Yahweh. Notice he uses the name Yahweh, the sacred tetragrammaton, which emphasizes God as the covenant God of Israel. He said, It is Yahweh who has raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. This is the foundational event for Israel. This is when they, they moved from, when God called out Abraham, it was to establish a new people. But when God brought Israel out of Egypt, it was to establish a new nation. And so this is the foundational event in the creation of a uh, the, the nation of Israel. And so he states that. And then he goes back even a little further to just remind them of what God has done. And he says, um, excuse me, verse, verse, verse 6, verse 7, he says, Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did. So he starts off reminding them about what God has done. Then in verse 7, he reminds them that they are, uh, they're, they're basically says, when he says, take your stand, that's the New American Standard translation. The uh, New King James translation says, stand still. But it's, it's, that's a better translation in the NASB. It's it basically saying, take the stand. You are now under the indictment. This is, uh, this is a legal position. Take a stand that I may reason with you. That, and the idea there is that I may make a case. I am going to structure my indictment against you so you take the stand and then I am going to uh, indict you before the Lord. And it's going to be in reference to all the righteous acts of the Lord. So what he's going to do is he's going to uh, list what God has done in his righteousness and his faithfulness to Israel, and it will be contrasted to Israel's failure and Israel's uh, disobedience. So he's using strong courtroom language, strong legal language here, and then he's going to uh, remind them of God's consistent uh, faithfulness in disciplining them and in following the covenant and he will remind them also of their failure and their their past discipline from God. His point is they can't blame him for what will happen with Saul. They can't blame God for what will happen with Saul. A second thing that is going on here that is being accomplished is Samuel is reminding them that part of God's grace includes divine discipline. It's it's, uh, God disciplines his children whom he loves and part of that love is is discipline and that he's going to remind them that God delivered them over or sold them into the hands of these enemies and that is all part of of God's God's discipline in verse 8 he reminds them of uh, the background again going back to Moses and Aaron said when Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord Then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron. So now he begins to set this pattern. What's the pattern? The Israelites are disobedient. Then they get put in a bind. And then they cry out to the Lord. And then the Lord's going to hear them and deliver them. And then they're going to desert the Lord again. 
and God's going to discipline them, and then they're going to cry out, and then God is going to deliver them. And this pattern uh, is especially pronounced during the period of the judges where you have their disobedience and then their discipline and then their deliverance. And you just see that cycle going on again and again. So in verse 9 we read, And when they forgot the Lord their God, so he skips over the conquest generation, and he goes directly into the period of the judges. And it's kind of interesting here if you're paying attention. Uh, He says, When they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera. Sisera was the Canaanite king of Hatsor. For those of you who have been to Israel, Hatsor is a little bit north of the Sea of Galilee, just on off of that northern tip. And uh, Sisera had a large, uh, large chariot army. He had a large cavalry, armed armored calf, and he kept the Israelites in the Valley of Esdralon. Uh, under control through his his uh, his cavalry, his chariot corps, and so. But that occurs. Who's the deliverer there? Here's a little Bible quiz. Who delivers Israel from the hand of uh, Sisera and uh, and uh, Jabin? Who who delivers them? Deborah and Barak. Good, John. Deborah and Barak. Now that doesn't happen till till you get to Gen- to, to uh, Judges four and five. And then the second person that the second episode that that um, Samuel mentions is uh, he sold him into the hand of the Philistines. Now, when did that occur? Nope. One verse. Shamgar. That's right. One verse. It's Shamgar at the end of chapter three. Shamgar is raised up as the judge to deliver them. Uh, from from the oppression of the Philistines, and this is just a small incursion. And then the third that he mentions is, uh, you're delivered into the hand of the king of Moab. What was his name? Eglon. Eglon, when Fatty killed, uh, you know, when Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. You all remember that in uh, in Judges. And that was that. That's great. So, so what Samuel does is he lists these first three. These are the first three episodes in the book of Judges, but he lists them in reverse order doesn't he? He lists those in reverse order. And so he is talking about, and, he, and he's, uh, and I don't know why he does that. I can't figure out what the, what the pattern is there. Uh, but he's just a reminder, and he focuses on those first three. And in each case, he says, they cried out to the Lord, and they said, we've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord. What had happened in each case is they turned to idols. And later on, we're going to see this indictment is, it says, don't turn to the empty and vain things. And that's constantly a way that idols are described. And that's what we do all the time. We turn to empty, vain details of life. We're looking for stability and comfort and security from the details of life. How much money's in the bank? How much money's in the 401k? Uh, owning a home, owning a car, living in the right address, right subdivision, wherever. But, but we put our security just like the rich young ruler, in the ephemeral details of life rather than in the hand of God. So they then, 
After they've done that and they have fallen prey to to uh, God's discipline, then they would cry out to God, now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And I can't help but think that Samuel is drawing a parallel because this is exactly what happened. The, 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 we studied this in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, that the men of Jabesh-Gilead are crying out to, the, to God to send someone uh, to, the, to deliver them. And so Samuel goes on and he reminds them now of how God delivered them and how he brought, uh, brought this, this deliverance to them. And he says in verse 11, the, the Lord and Jeroboam, that is another name for Gideon, the Lord sent Jeroboam, uh, Bedan, this is another name for Barak, uh, who was uh, Deborah's general, uh, Jephthah and Samuel. Now he's progressed beyond the first three the first three uh, groups that oppressed Israel, now he's looking at, with the exception of Barak, he's looking at the last three deliverers. So it's interesting how, by, by just mentioning each instant, he's reminding them of, of the, whole, the whole episode. The Lord sent Jeroboam, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in in safety. I mean, you notice he doesn't say Samson. He says Samuel, because Samson didn't deliver them. It's Samuel who ultimately delivers them uh, from the oppression of the Philistines. But that oppression has now, uh, now come back, as we'll see in the next chapter. And verse 12, he concludes, he says, When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord was God your king. Makes it very clear. You rejected God as king, and you turned to uh, a human viewpoint solution for your problems. You're not trusting, uh, not trusting in the Lord. And so their focal point is that somehow um, having a king, like all of the other nations, is going to solve our problems. And see, this is what constantly happens in history. This is what ha- we can see this describing the church over the last 200 years, how again and again and again the church gets away from the truth of Scripture and it turns to every human viewpoint solution whether it's science, whether it's knowledge, whether it is sociology or psychology, uh, whether it is uh, advertising and the whole approach to, to various tools that are used through, through advertising to build a church. I had a friend of mine that, um, that I uh, taught Greek to in my living room in, in, uh, here in Houston about 30 years or more ago. And later he went to Dallas Seminary and he uh, ran the uh, Sunday school class at the church I was pastoring in Irving. And then he came back to Houston and he uh, was very involved with uh, College of Biblical Studies. And at that time, CBS was really growing and expanding. And he and the president were, were taking it outside the Bible churches to a lot of Baptist churches, and they were expanding it. And one time we sat down, and he said, he said, Robbie, you just wouldn't believe it. He said, we have probably the finest education, the top one, one hundredth of a percent of educated Christians uh, in all of history, with with what we have, with just a master's of theology from Dallas Seminary, we probably know more 
than, than anybody else in all of history. But we can't build a church. We can't go out. So you get these Baptists. They come out of a seminary. They're taught how to organize and administer and how to put people together and how to do everything. They can go out and build a church of a 1,000 people in, in, in a couple of years. And all we do is teach the Bible, and we have you know, 50, 75, 100 people there. And that illustrates a difference. Harry Leaf, who ordained me, told me one time, he said, Robbie, anybody can build a big organization in the power of the flesh. Anyone can do it through human viewpoint technique. You see people who go out and start businesses and build Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 companies all the time in the energy of the flesh. If you know the right kinds of of tools and everything, you can do it in the flesh. But you have to make sure that whatever you're doing in ministry, that it's God, the Holy Spirit, that's building that ministry and not you in your effort. And most of these churches and most ministries that you will see that people think of are so great because they have all the trappings uh, that we look to, like the rich young ruler. They have money. They have a lot of young people there. They have a lot of power and prestige and big buildings and lots of acreage. But they're not teaching the word. They're not fulfilling the mission that God gave the church. They are. They built it in their own power and not on the power of the word. And this is the trap that Israel fell into. They want to be a king. They want to have a king like everybody else. We're going to do it according to human viewpoint standards and not according to uh, divine viewpoint standards. And when I went back in the pastorate in 1998 and went to Preston, I said, you know, I've been under, had this pressure from deacons and elders in three different churches where I had worked that somehow it's the pastor's job to build the church. And I said, this congregation understands that that's not the pastor's job. The pastor's job is to feed the flock, as Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus said, I will build the church. And I said, I'm not going to worry about how many people show up and how many people don't show up because I want people who come to the church who come for one reason. They want to listen to the Bible. They want to learn the Bible, and they want to listen to me teach the Bible. If they don't want to come and listen to me teach the Bible, then I don't want them. They don't want me. I'll go back, find something else to do with my life. But it's if the Lord has gifted me to be a pastor, then what I'm going to do is teach the Word, and God's going to provide the hearers or not, but I'm going to do what the Scripture says to do. And that is what should be our attitude. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't tell people about the church. You don't witness to people. You don't talk to people. You know, one of the great things is that I've noticed, and you see it on Facebook, people hear their pastor, hear a good Bible class from their pastor. They post links on that to their, you know, to, to on, on their Facebook page because they're excited about what they're learning. And And I think back to when I was a teenager and going to church, the church, the church that I grew up in, which many of you know, uh, really exploded in the late 50s and 60s because people came to church and they were so excited about what they were learning. They were going home and they were telling everybody they knew and they were grabbing them and saying, you've got to go to Bible class with me tonight. You've got to do this. That is the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's not a gimmick and that's not doing it according to human viewpoint standards. But this is what Israel was selling out to is these human viewpoint standards. So then in verse 13, verse 13, going back to picking up what 
what he said back in verse 2. Notice in verse 2, Samuel says, Now here is the king walking before you. He picks up on that thought now in verse 13. He says, Now therefore here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. So he's emphasizing their personal responsibility, but this isn't the indictment. I mean, it is in one sense, but he recognizes this is valid because God authorized it. And he says, and take note, the Lord has set a king over you. So God has established uh, this, this ruler. Now, starting in verse 13, we're going to see what the responsibilities are going to be on the people. In verse 13, we read, Now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you... Uh, excuse me, verse 14 says, If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reign over you will continue following the Lord your God. What's he talking about? This is a reflection of those blessing paragraphs in Leviticus 26 and, and Deuteronomy uh, 28, if you obey the Lord. And if you look at these words, fear the Lord, serve him, obey his voice, uh, do not rebel against the Lord. These are the terms that are in the, in the uh, Mosaic law, in the covenant, that God is calling them to hear. It's interesting, when God says, hear the word or listen to me, he doesn't mean have your auditory nerves stimulated where somebody just understands the, the basic dictionary meaning of the words and can you know, summarize what has been said. Uh, when God says, listen to me, he means obey me, do what I say. If God says, you haven't listened to me, he doesn't mean, well, you didn't, you didn't physically hear it. He said, you didn't do what I said to do. Hearing and listening mean obeying or, or, or the negative, not obeying. And we see this. I'm just going to give you three example passages. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.3, Moses, uh, God said, O, o Lord, o Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly just as the Lord, the God of your forefathers, has promised you. So Moses is saying, listen and be careful to do it. Hear. Pay attention to the law. Now, one of the things that I have I, I taught when we were in the early part of Matthew is... And we have a passage in Luke that Jesus grew grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Basically, summarized Jesus' training before he goes back to Jerusalem with his parents when he's when he's bar mitzvahed. That Jesus that Jesus was trained as a normal male child in a normal Jewish home, and that means that by the time he was twelve years old. He had memorized the Old Testament in Hebrew. That was normal. And I've said that for many years, but I didn't connect the dots. And I was listening to a former professor of mine the other day and, and a recording, and he, he, he took it to the next step. And that was true of every other male in Israel when Jesus walked on the earth. Because that was the, what did I say at the beginning? Jesus had a normal Jewish boy's Upbringing. I don't know why that's blinding flash of the obvious. That meant every other male boy in Israel had that same training. That was normative in Israel. Now, that doesn't mean every single one had, you know, a perfect memory and memorized everything, but that was the standard, that, that, that everyone had to know the word of God and everybody memorized it, every bit of it, every, 
you know, they could sit down and, and start at the beginning of 1 Samuel and recite it all the way through to the end of 2 Samuel without stopping. We have such a low view of, and low expectation of Christians. You memorize the 64 verses in the Navigator's uh, topical memory system. Oh, wow, what an accomplishment. In previous generations, there were many people who memorized many books in the New Testament, if not the whole New Testament and much of the Old Testament. That was expected. They didn't have television and Facebook and email and all these other things to distract them. They had a, and, and, and when you memorize scripture, it, it, it enhances your own memory. Now, most of us may be beyond the point of, of really accomplishing great memory feats like that. But if you start your children and your grandchildren like that, when they are just starting to learn how to talk, those verses that they memorize, those books of the Bible that they memorize before they're 10 years old will never leave them. I have, I tell you, I have memorized Luke 2 and Matthew 2 almost every year, the last five or six years related to Christmas, and the next September rolls around. It's like, I don't even remember this. But all of those verses I grew up, grew up memorizing, going to Camp Penal, memorizing all of those verses in the topical memory system, many other verses, several chapters. I can sit down, and if I just review those a little bit, they come back, and verses in there that I that I have uh, not thought about in a while, they'll, they'll just come back to me. The Holy Spirit will bring them to my mind. It's so important when they're young to have that high standard of education. And that's what... When Moses is talking about here, that was the example that was laid down uh, in, in the uh, in the law is to learn these things and to know them. Uh, Deuteronomy twelve twenty eight. Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, in order that all, uh, in order that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever, for you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord. So we listen to obey, not just listen because we're going to go, you know, I went to Bible class Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday this week. I did, did my bit. No, we, we got politicians who are like that. We got two groups of politicians. We got one kind of politician that is seriously involved in the church. We've got two kinds, the bad kind and the good kind. Okay, we've got one former president, probably the second to worst president we've ever had. Uh, but there's no doubt that from a, an early age, he was involved in church. He teaches Sunday school. That's part of who he is. He's got a liberal brand of Christianity, and his theology is not biblical, but, but that's his deeply held religious convictions, and nobody can doubt that. And then we've got a guy running this time, Ted Cruz. He grew up going to uh, private school, Second Baptist here in Houston. He's got he's been in the church and grown up in the church and been involved in Christian activities and Bible studies since he was a young boy. And this doesn't have anything to do with politics. But we've got other politicians who, whenever they run for office, all of a sudden they have to dust off their Bible. And they pull it out and they talk about some things that they usually don't get right and they embarrass themselves because they're trying to cloak their activities in, in some uh, facade of religiosity and, and, and piety. But what the law is talking about is that this needs to be built into your soul. Deuteronomy 27.10 says, You shall therefore obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes which I commanded you. That's what the background is. To verse 14, if you fear the Lord, if you're obedient, 
Remember, the fear of the Lord in Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And so he's going to build on it from there. We'll come back next time. Remember, next week, no Bible class. We'll come back after that, and we will um, wrap up the rest rest of this chapter and connect the dots back to... Um, back to Deuteronomy before we press on into the next chapter. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and be reminded that that we are to be faithful uh, to you. That's a challenge. And even when we're not faithful, you are faithful. You're gracious to to us beyond anything that we can ever imagine and that you deal with us not on the basis of our failures but on the basis of your grace and your character. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin that we have and the fact that we're all, even though we're all sinners and we're all failures in many, many different ways, we are victors in Jesus Christ. And as we walk by the Spirit, we can increase as overcomers in our day-to-day living. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.